Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. For today's episode, I wanted to share with you a special presentation I gave to Harding University's Archaeology Club on Monday, September 27, 2021. Dr. Dale Manor, who has been on the podcast before, asked me to speak to the Archaeology Club when he found out I was going to be on campus for Harding's lectureship, and I thought it would be great to combine that presentation with this series on the New Testament we're currently going through here on the podcast. Today's episode is entitled History in His Story, Biography and Archaeology of the Life of Jesus. And in this presentation, I take a couple of test cases and examine the Gospels for corroborating evidence as a historian and an archaeologist would do. This episode will serve as kind of a recap to what Michael Lacona and I have talked about in the last two episodes before we begin digging into the individual Gospel accounts coming up. If you enjoyed this episode and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? And if you haven't already, would you consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you won't miss out on future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, thank you all so much for, uh, for being here. It is sad that Dr. Manor can't be here, but uh, Kenneth is right. He's heard me talk before. And uh, I, I'm making an audio recording for him, and uh, it's really great that we're that that we're here. But we're sad you're not here. Aww. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, no. Appreciate appreciate y'all being here. I. Uh, it's not often that uh, that students like me get to do something with their dissertations that is especially beneficial for the church and that they really enjoy. Those of you who have had to go on to get doctorates and things, some of you it might have started out enjoying your topic and eventually decided that, yikes, I just need to get this done so I can have those letters after my name to do what I want to do. Others of us have been very fortunate to, uh, to do something that you're really passionate about. I was up talking uh, before we started with, uh, with three friends up here, and there were a couple of times I was like, oh man, I don't know if it's the caffeine or if it's the fact that I'm talking about history that I'm really excited. But I, I appreciate y'all joining us tonight. Uh, title is, you know, in honor of Dr. Manor, right? It, he likes catchy titles and clever word plays and things like that. And so history and his story, biography and archaeology of the life of Jesus. I want to start off this evening with a question to get us thinking about what we're going to be doing. So, if you will, uh, if you'll just bear with me a little bit. What does the word genre mean? <laughs> Pardon my French. Because <laughs> it's a French word, by the way. Anyway, what does the word genre mean? What do you think? A type? Yeah? Anybody else? Category? Very good. I'm going to ask a lot of questions for audience participation. Okay, very good. Yes, a type or category. We think about different genres of literature, right? I think I overheard a gentleman saying he was reading Herodotus. So, an example of ancient historiography. Yeah, you could look at another other thing, another things like that. Music. Um, you know, again, to keep us uh, rolling with this line of thinking. Uh, think about literature today. Okay, what you might find at Barnes and Noble or you're perusing Amazon stuff like that. What are some popular genres of literature today? We'll take anything and everything. Fantasy, sci-fi, and there are all kinds of different things that you could kind of fit into that, right? You know, Star Wars is more space fantasy. Star Trek is more science fiction. Yeah? 
Mystery, yeah. Virtue. Historical fiction, okay. Any other, any other genres or, uh, or genres of literature? What's that? Self-help, yeah. So we started off with some fiction, right? Big categories of fiction. We moved over to, I guess maybe depending on how helpful the self-help is, moved into some areas of non-fiction. Yeah, just a couple more, what do you think? Biography. Biography. Comedy, yeah, humor, yeah. Very good, yeah. These are all kinds of things that you could find today. Let's uh, narrow it down a little bit. We're no longer in Barnes & Noble. We're in the, uh, the First Testament. What are some genres of literature we find in the Old Testament? What's that? History, History? yeah. Poetry. Poetry. Law. Law, yeah. Wisdom. Narrative is definitely how it's structured, yeah. I heard prophecy. Very good, yeah. Uh, Proverbs, which kind of broadly sort of in this wisdom category, right? You can also talk about a technical term, ancient Near Eastern cosmology, which is a very fancy and technical way of describing how ancient people from that part of the world thought the universe was put together. Well, we definitely see that in the opening pages of the Bible, right? You know, they've, got a, they've got a specific idea of how God did all these kinds of things. Okay, let's uh, move over to... Uh, uh, from the First Testament to the good stuff. S sorry, Dr. Banner. <laughs> He's not here. <laughs> He's not here. Um, genres of literature in the New Testament. Luke, do you like my use of fonts here? I know you're particular about it. All right. We'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, genres of literature in the New Testament. In the New Testament. Letters or epistles, some will try to make a, a, a technical distinction between a letter as just, hey, Bob, how are you, versus to the churches that reside in Rome, yeah, that kind of thing. That's, uh, not, I think that's fallen out of favor a little bit, but yeah, letters or epistles, anything else? Biography. Biography, yeah, very good. I, I thought I heard something. Apocalyptic, yeah, that's, talk about mystery and suspense, right, and, and fantasy and Science fiction? Is there, is there some science fiction in there? Definitely monsters. Anything else that we see in, uh, in the New Testament? We've mentioned some big ones. Biography, apocalyptic, letters. History is uh, the other one I'm looking for. Very good. I heard narrative. That's uh, kind of a structure. What about sermons? Hebrews? We normally call it a letter, right? But uh, if you look at its structure and just kind of the way it sounds, I think it's maybe more correct to think about it as maybe a sermon, a homily. Anyway, let's move to the area that we're going to focus on more tonight. What about the genre of the Gospels? Biography. Yeah. Show of hands, if you agree with biography as the genre for the Gospels, just curious. Okay. For those of you who are on the fence, let me ask, why? I'm not, I'm not here to, to tell you you're wrong, but I am just, I'm just curious. What, uh, what is about labeling it as biography that you're either not sure about or would disagree with? I think the modern category of biography implies a chronological telling. Mm, okay. Where it seems that the, uh, the stories of Jesus have been arranged thematically. And certainly in some instances, yeah. There's some sort of structuring of the episodes. Yeah. Uh, I also think a, a biography 
generally begins with a person's birth and ends with their death. Mm -hmm. And um, the Gospels, well, two of them do neither. And four of them don't end with a death. <laughs> right. Um, so when, when your protagonist has been resurrected, yeah. <laughs> you don't end with his death. Yeah. yeah? Uh, but the fact that his birth is not included in the first 30 years out of 33, give or take, right, yeah. is, are not included. And we see other early Christians trying to fill in those gaps with other things. There's some, there's some very, if you're not familiar, there's some, some wildly fantastic, fantastic in the, in the generic sense of it is fantasy, where they have, uh, they've tried to fill in the gaps with some of Jesus's childhood. If you read these things, it, it's surprising. Who is this precocious brat <laughs> named Jesus? He, he, uh, he chides a, a, a classmate for bumping into him and he falls down dead. He makes some clay pigeons out of the dirt and then collapse and the pigeons come to life and they fly away. He roasts his, his Hebrew professor for not understanding the true nature of the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew Bible. And now he starts, yeah, it's wild. And you think, yeah, professors in the room would think, praise the Lord that I do not have baby Jesus in my class. <laughs> the genre of the Gospels is most properly identified as examples of ancient, more particularly, Greco-Roman biography. Now, Parker raised a good point here just a second ago where he said some people might be kind of hesitant about that because it seems like our biographies today don't really have much to do with the Gospels. They don't look very much alike. Well, guess what? That is correct. Ancient biography, and particularly we're talking about Greco-Roman biography, does not equal modern biography today. You can go to any bookstore and say that you are, you f say you find yourself in the American history section, and you can find some names that you really like. Um, David Hackett Fisher, you got that, that one right? Uh, John McCullough, is that another one? Okay, I'm trying to think of the guys that I remember reading in Jared Dockery's American Military History class and I saw in my dad's bookshelf last time I was home. And you can see these massive tomes, American Sphinx, a biography on Thomas Jefferson. And you can see these, all these other ones um, that you have uh, you know, on these, on these great, uh, great American presidents. Compared with the Gospels, these things look very different. Well, Surprisingly, the world of New Testament scholarship has this very jolly-looking Anglican priest to thank for helping identify the Gospels as biographies. This is Dr. Richard Burridge. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, this, uh, this is not a Catholic caller, it's an Anglican caller. He set out years and years ago for his doctoral work to argue that the Gospels were not biographies because uh, another gentleman had raised this issue. Now, a quick snapshot of, uh, of New Testament scholarship. It is not always populated by faithful, believing Christians. Many people in the world of New Testament scholarship do it because they either grew up in church or it's just interesting, historical, historically interesting to them. And I will refer you to the expertise on German scholarship to Dr. Paul Pollard, 
who can help us to, if we have any questions about that. But generally speaking, a hundred plus years ago, New Test the, the consensus of New Testament scholarship was the Gospels are biographies, but they're a little, they're a little different. Then the consensus started to shift and people started arguing across particularly European scholarship, which was dominant at the time in New Testament scholarship. They started arguing, no, 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 the Gospels are, are without a particular genre. They, they appear to be unlike anything else that we have. That view dominated for decades until the mid to late 70s when a couple of folks started saying, ah, you know, these, these really do, they really do kind of look like biographies. We're just not exactly sure how. This gentleman set out in his doctoral thesis to prove wrong this new and silly notion. And you know what he found? He actually turned his life around, really. He found 12 features of ancient biography, and the Gospels have every single one of these features in varying degrees. And so what started out as a project to say, no, 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 the Gospels are not biographies, what he ended up doing was becoming the leading figure in arguing that the Gospels are actually examples of ancient biographies. I'll run through several of these quickly, and I appreciate many of you taking pictures of this. I do not normally like to have slides that look like this, but I wanted you to be able to take a picture of this information quickly so you could have it. Basically, <clears throat> what Dr. Richard Burridge did, if you want to summarize it in kind of a silly way, basically he proved that the Gospels are about Jesus <laughs> in a way that satisfied much of the rest of New Testament scholars. <laughs> and so, subject's name at the beginning or immediately after the prologue, well, you can look to our four canonical Gospels. And he found all these by reading not the Gospels, but other examples of ancient biographies roughly a hundred years before and after the Gospels were written. And he inductively approached this. You know, you know the term inductively, right? You've got a preacher who will kind of preach through a text and we'll see the things that kind of generally rise up out of there. And that's how we'll approach the text. This is how this gentleman inductively approached ancient biographies. And he noticed that consistently 12 features emerged out of, uh, out of all of these. You, you can have chronological or topical arrangement. Well, that was one of the things that we had mentioned earlier about how maybe, maybe the Gospels don't quite look like our biographies because we normally march a straight line all the way through, or at least the author gives us some clue when they're having some flashback or something like that. There's a focus on the subject. Notice this one here. The, su the subject of the biography is the one who is doing the most speaking. There's a greater percentage. That subject of the biography, the person, is the subject of more verbs than any other person in the whole story. That's a fascinating statistic. Some other ones too, framed by birth and death, um, but not always as we saw. Historical settings as opposed to like mythological or heavenly settings, um, <clears throat> various topics consistently emerged, ancestry, birth, boyhood, education, deeds, virtues, death. The subject was uh, generally portrayed positively. Biographies tended to do this, and that kind of makes sense. If you're going to devote your time to 
studying somebody like this. And then there are various motivations for, for writing about a, a figure as well. You could, uh, you could teach. You could offer a defense for why they did what they did. To preserve min- memory, obviously, our Gospels, if you look at this list, you can read that and think, well, yeah, our Gospels, they really do seem to do a lot of this. Luke, for example, take, uh, take number seven here. The prologue to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke mentions talking with other eyewitnesses. Folks, this is good, solid authorship, where an ancient author is sitting here alerting his audience to the fact that he has not just come up with this stuff all by himself, but he has actually talked with people and collated his sources and arranged them and put all this stuff together perfectly according to, as we can see here, the conventions that were in use at that day and time. So, if we can move on then with this notion that the Gospels do actually represent examples of ancient biography, how then should we read the Gospels? What are the authors, what are the evangelists trying to show us? Well, by using the conventions that they use, by writing in the genre that they wrote in, we can see that they have clued us in, the audience, into their intentions to tell us about the life of a real person who was witnessed and known to do and say the kinds of things that they wrote about. Now that is a bare minimum of what our Gospels try to do because obviously, right, they want to instill within us faithfulness, allegiance to Jesus the Christ and full participation in the kingdom. Now, obviously, not every biography of every person is going to try to instill that same degree of allegiance to the protagonist. But at the bare minimum, the Gospels do at least this. At the bare minimum, the evangelists do at least this. Let's pause for a moment and reflect. Questions, comments, observations, anything to give me a chance to take one more sip of my milkshake <laughs> before it starts to melt. Yes, sir. So how does this uh, interact with Justin Martyr's comment that the gospel should be viewed as the memoirs of the apostles? Is this, is this supportive to that? Does it just tell us how those memoirs have been framed? Or is it a challenge against that? I think that those two notions are able to cohere pretty smoothly. What Justin Martyr has witnessed there by describing these writings as the memoirs of the apostles, he's definitely showing us something that Luke shows us directly and that historically we see by naming the first and fourth gospels after Matthew and John. He's showing us a connection, an apostolic connection, which was very important for the early church that helped them realize, hey, these these really do have strong ties. Some of these other strange ones where Jesus is making birds and roasting his teachers, these not so much. By calling them the memoirs, he is 
shading into this area. I don't, I don't know that he's using that technically. I think he's describing that, uh, them sort of generally or maybe non-technically. But by describing them as memoirs, he is implying that there's real genuine historical memory apparent in these texts. Clinton, does that answer your question? Thanks, sir. I saw, I saw another question over here. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, we, we've got priests and out the Gospels and then John and, and, and they, they're all a little bit different. Yeah. But they're all, they're all really following that general category. Mm-hmm. Now, wouldn't it be fair to divide them up? Do people seem to lump them all together all the time, every time? How do you mean lump them together? I, I, how, how do you mean lump them together? Oh, right. That's right. So they're all lumped together. Yeah. And, and so I'm wondering if it would be more fair to divide them up. Oh, okay. Yeah. And say, okay, let's look at this one by itself and look at this one by itself. Yeah, yeah. By, by calling them all Gospels, uh, in the ancient world, there was not a category known as gospel. Early Christians would have read these and understood these to be what is elsewhere called a bios, which is the Greek word for life. So we get our word biology from that. Um, it, it's the word for life in the sense of like life or stuff, as opposed to a different word for life that Jesus uses in, say, John 14.6. Um, <clears throat> and so they would have read these like that by calling them all Gospels rather than individually, you know, kind of siloing them. I think this is a term of convenience, but more drives home that it, I think, is intended to emphasize their commonalities as opposed to their differences. You are right to point to the, the differences between the Synoptic Gospels and John, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. What's interesting is when you compare those two categories, the first three and John, with other biographies written by different people about the same person, the differences in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are not as great as the differences with some of these other biographies written elsewhere. I don't know if I answered your question. Did I? Yeah. Was that satisfactory? Yeah. But I see more difference between Mark and the other two synoptics than between the synoptics. Yeah. Right in it. Yeah. That's right. There's um, af- afterwards. Let me recommend uh, a book to you by by a guy that um, that uh, very kindly served on my dissertation committee. Um, the book is entitled "Why Are Th- Why There Are Differences in the Gospels." And I'll, um, I'll write his name up here on the board in case I forget. His name is Mike Lacona. If you search him, you'll find his stuff. And then we can talk about that afterwards if we have time to the whole group or individually if, if you'd like to. But so, uh, all right, so moving on, um, let's switch gears slightly. We framed what the Gospels are, I think. The Gospels are examples of ancient biography. So let's move a little bit now to maybe how, how a historian would read the Bible, how a historian or really an archaeologist would read the Bible. This is, this is not intended to be a trick question. I'm generally curious what you think. 
Are miracles easy to prove as miracles? No. Justin, I know you love that word prove yeah. as a professor of exercise science. I'm going to ask you. I was not planning on this, yeah. but we've talked about this kind of stuff before. You want to come up and address the crowd for the rest of the hour? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this word proof. Well, we, uh, I take points off of my students who use the word proof in a paper. If you can't use the P word. Can you prove that? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't. It's, so, it's I mean, hard to, to say that we've yeah. proved something. However, there is various degrees of evidence. Yes. Of uh, various degrees of strength. And we can have various degrees of confidence to accept these different uh, pieces of evidence, mm -hmm. and I can, with a good deal of confidence, accept some evidence, yeah. and with a good deal of confidence, reject some evidence. So in the historical sciences, we tend to use, and we use these terms technically, at least you know, when, when you're writing for an academic crowd, it's very important to, to use words correctly and to define them correctly. How many times has somebody said something, well, that was taken out of context, because they got in trouble for it. Okay, so we're going to try to use these words technically uh, in historical sciences. Something is possible, something is plausible, something is probable, and then something is certain. Okay, And so we have kind of a spectrum here and then we can kind of move down there. Bland, would it be fair to say that it, it might be better for your students if they use terminology like this or or maybe based on this evidence, it is probable that such and such processes are occurring in this particular way or something like that. We, we, would, we would say, uh, you know, it seems to be the case. Yeah. Or, or the way that the literature seems to indicate. Uh, we would nuance and, and be cautious with our language. We could even put numbers to those things. Yeah. There's a, there's a degree of precision with this as well. Yeah. So I ask this question because I want us to think about things that as a historian, and we have a real trained historian with us, Dr. Jared Donkery, trained military historian. As a historian, Jared, if you were to look at a text, could how comfortable would you say, you know, looking at this historical text, would you feel saying, yeah, I proved that this was a miracle? As a historian writing technically. So, how, how comfortable would I be looking at a gospel, gospel to say this verse? Sure. From a technical standpoint, you would struggle to say proven miracle, R right? I, I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, yeah. Yes, because you know, to a large extent, not, not to a complete extent, but to a large extent, you're having to accept the Bible as its own proof. Right. And, so and there's a lot of philosophical, philosophical assumptions underneath that that need to be spelled out and, and, and really argued for in order to be able to get to this point where you can say miracle proven from a technical historical standpoint. Is that fair? Yeah. So I have all that discussion. As a historian reads this, it is difficult to look at a text and say proven miracle. As a historian reads this, and part of the reason why it's difficult is because, well, are miracles naturally recurring phenomena like sunrises are they practically repeatable no 
many in the ancient world thought that if you said this, these special words or mixed these certain potions, then you could persuade or coerce spiritual beings to do what you wanted them to do. That was the ancient view of magic. That was the ancient view of magic. But that's not miracles. That's patently not miracles. The New Testament refuses to associate what God is doing through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and what, say, Simon Magus tried to do in Acts, in Acts 8, or some of the other folks. Acts 19, these people throwing away their papyri, their magical scrolls. Anyway, as a historian, it's difficult to look at this and say, proven from a technical standpoint. So what we have to do then as a historian or an archaeologist is instead look for things that we can verify or corroborate. So again, let's turn to the Gospels. We can see in the Gospels people mentioned in the Gospels, places and events that we find elsewhere, outside the Gospels. A couple of examples here you can look at, well, figures like Pontius Pilate. From a historical standpoint, it might be difficult. It might pose a challenge for a historian who is also a believer. If we hear about these very important Roman governors that we have zero evidence for outside the New Testament, from a technical historical standpoint, that could be problematic. But from a technical historical standpoint, the Gospels have more historical credibility because there are mentions of people like Pontius Pilate outside the Gospels. And the people who mention Pontius Pilate often mention him in relation to a physical geographical location, the same place where the Gospels mention him. We could take this uh, last one here, the expulsion of Jews from Rome. That's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. But it's also mentioned in an early 2nd century Roman historian named Suetonius in a biography of the Roman Emperor Claudius who was said in Acts 18 to be the one who expelled the Jews from Rome. Chances are, I think it's fair, Suetonius is not sitting down with the scroll of the book of Acts. When did that happen? Chances are he's got other, other sources. And because he was writing after Luke, Luke certainly didn't use him. And so we can look at these kinds of things that we can observe, and we can say, okay, these are points of corroboration. These are points of corroboration that kind of lend historical credibility to what we're dealing with here. Historians and archaeologists, we don't observe things like biologists or chemists. Okay? We're just... We're operating scientifically, meaning we have a set method that we use, but we just can't observe things in the same way because the past is not directly observable. There are only these certain traces remain. Only certain traces remain. Quick show, uh, give me a thumbs up. Are you with me so far? Okay, everybody following along so far? Great. Okay. So then, as a historian or an archaeologist, here are some tools of the trade that we would use in order to look at some of this stuff, and then we'll wrap up with some 
with some particular test cases, actually from the Gospel of John. So let's take a look at some of these things. I just mentioned the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, mentioned in the book of Acts, which is a great, it's a fine example of Greco-Roman historiography. Now the way biblical scholars use the term historiography is slightly different from how you might hear it in the history department across the lawn. Generally, right, his, the term historiography is writing about history in the sense of you're taking kind of an analysis of the historical writings themselves. Is that fair? Well, when we use in our system, we can use historiography for the talking about an examination of what different That's right. You said it more eloquently than I did. An examination of what other historians have said. Comparing and contrasting their various Yeah. Yeah, and you, you had me do something like that for our, my Arkansas history class. Um, <clears throat> sadly, or happily, we will never see that paper again. <laughs> um, so that, from, from across the lawn, that's how, that's how the history department would use this term. Bi folks in biblical studies, when we talk about historiography, what we mean is something like, say, the book of Acts or Herodotus or Thucydides or some of these other names that you might be familiar with from Western Civ. Long live the humanities. So, two or more independently generated sources, when they agree, we can start moving our sh shades or grades of evidence or certainty from mere possible on down to maybe plausible or even probable. When we see examples of something like, well, Acts written before Suetonius, and Suetonius almost certainly not needing to dig into the texts of this weird anti-Roman sect, when these two guys are saying independently that this thing happened, that this Roman emperor did this thing to these people, we have an example of what is often technically referred to as multiple and independent attestation. So let's take a look at some of these things. We can find this kind of stuff in the New Testament itself. We can take a look at Paul, who is, even though he comes later in order of the New Testament canon, Paul was writing before the Gospels were being written. It's a consensus position of New Testament scholars these days. And so take a look at this. It's unlikely that the evangelists, two of whom were eyewitnesses, right? Two of whom were eyewitnesses. It's unlikely that they are combing through the letters of Paul, trying to find biographical information about Jesus, which is not very common in Paul's letters, right? Paul isn't necessarily arguing, oh, you know, actually Jesus said this with the Pharisees. Paul's not having those kinds of conversations. But Paul does occasionally mention some things 20 or so years before the evangelists are writing. But we just mentioned how the evangelists were almost certainly not using Paul's letters. They wouldn't need to because they, some of them, and some of their sources also, like Luke mentioned sources, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, they were eyewitnesses or had access to eyewitnesses. And so we can take uh, something like this. So again, Paul in the Gospels, resurrection tradition. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. I'll read these for us. 
Paul is using a particular word in 1 Corinthians 15.3, a word that can mean betray in the sense that Judas betrayed Jesus. But when you're talking about traditions and passing something on, this is almost a technical term. Paul is passing on this tradition. He's handing on to you, handing over this tradition. You can see how then that same word means handing over in the sense of betrayal. He says, I hand it on to you as of first importance, what I in turn had received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Paul is not speaking comprehensively here because did Jesus first appear to Cephas? Was, he the, was, was Peter the very first person to see the resurrected Jesus? No. Okay, you know, Paul would have access to that, but he, that his point is not comprehensive. His point is accuracy, but not precision. Here, and he says, Then he appeared uh, to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul is naming the people who could correct him if he were making this up. Not something many folks would do. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, Paul is giving us the kinds of information that coheres with what we can see in the Gospels. We can also look at other examples too if you wanted to. Lord's Supper tradition. There are some details in the very, uh, there's some variation in the details with how we see it in 1 Corinthians 11, Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. But goodness, there's a substantial similarity. Okay, so we have this notion, right, of two or more independently generated sources. When those agree, we start moving from mere possibility into plausibility and probability. Man, we're really probably working with some good, solid historical evidence here. This is how historians and archaeologists read this. What happens when you have a slightly different situation? So Paul and the Gospels, big fans of Jesus, right? Yeah, okay, that's, that's pretty obvious. What happens when you have a view that is common to friend and foe alike? Or another way to put this is the testimony of an unsympathetic witness. Well, we see this kind of thing in the Gospels as well. We could turn to something like Matthew chapter 12, Verses 22 through 24, I've got those here. Then they brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute, and he, being Jesus, cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see now. All the crowds were amazed and said, could, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, yeah, we think it is. Nope. <laughs> They said, no, 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 it's only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this fellow casts out demons. Now, wait a second here. Notice what the Pharisees say and what they don't say, right? The disciples and the evangelists all readily affirm, quickly affirm, Jesus casts out demons by God's power. Notice the Pharisees, they are not at all denying Jesus' power. The Pharisees inherently agree that Jesus also has power to cast out demons. 
These are his antagonists. Both Jesus' friends and enemies agreed he was known to have power to cast out demons. It would be as if, I'm going to bring this point up as an example and not a point for discussion. It would be as if, say sometime in 2020, a man named Fauci and a man named Trump said, you know, we're right on this and we agree 100% on the right course of action after some initial disagreement. All right. Point of example, not for discussion. <laughs> Friends and enemies with a common view or testimony of an unsympathetic witness. A couple of things that we can look at. A historian would also look at things this way, so we can move on a little bit. <coughs> Let's say that you have a source, like the Gospels, right? that are obviously favorable towards Jesus, okay? The protagonist is the hero. Jesus is the obvious hero. But what happens when you have some sources that may present something potentially embarrassing or bothersome to the audience, especially when the evangelist wants you not just to believe that Jesus is a good teacher, but to pledge your entire allegiance and loyalty and fidelity to this person as representing God's final and decisive act in the world. And we see things like Jesus' execution as a criminal. Oh, and by the way, the people that Jesus appointed, the people that Jesus appointed to carry this message throughout the world, they stayed steadfast. They had invincible faith. Uh, only after... They tucked tail and ran and denied him three times. And yeah. Well, what about this strange episode in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, where Mark just flat out tells us Jesus could do no miracles there? Or what about this uncomfortable teaching that, man, it runs directly counter to common notions of Jewish piety. Let the dead bury their own dead. No, 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 Jesus, you're... You're supposed to sit and mourn with me because my father passed away. And there's a lot of ways that maybe we could dig into what Jesus said here. But these, these are not things that lead us to think, man, yeah, Jesus always made me feel warm and fuzzy. Now, these, are, these are some tough things that are potentially embarrassing or maybe bothersome to their audience or they run counter to the reasonable expectations of the audience. So when that kind of stuff happens, it's very unlikely for an author to write something, to make something up, to fabricate something that would tick off one of these, like that would check off one of these categories. But if this kind of thing was so, so deeply rooted in the tradition that you couldn't get rid of it, and you're just stuck with it as uncomfortable as it makes you feel, that's another way where we can assess maybe we are dealing with some solid historical tradition here. A couple of other things. You've got some stuff that just sort of accidentally corroborates. It's an incidental detail here or there, but it's something interesting that we see and we think, well, man, that this. Uh, what appears to be some kind of throwaway detail over here corroborates very nicely with, well, some literary or some material, some archaeological evidence that we have over here. 
This kind of stuff happens all the time with, well, the kind of stuff that Dr. Manor does. Archaeological findings, geography, and this word over here, realia. Realia is a technical term in biblical studies. It means the physical material culture findings that excavations show us, whether it's inscriptions or you know, other kinds of things that we can see. You know, like you've seen, you've seen, you've seen little uh, recreations of the Artemis of Ephesus statue, right? Those, if you were to find those in the ground, that would be realia, this kind of real material culture. One of the foremost experts on the Gospel of John, a guy named Dr. Paul Anderson, says this about the Gospel of John. He says, there is more archaeological, topographical, and apparently historical material in, the, in John than in any other gospel, or in even all three combined. Dr. Pollard, how does that strike you? I like that man. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a strong mustache, too. That has real Dave Bland vibes, for those who know Dave Bland. <laughs> now, maybe there's some hyperbole here, but what... Dr. Anderson is saying is, well, when he refers to archaeological, topographical, and historical material, he's referring to incidental place names. If you read through the Gospel of John, John is name dropping everywhere, people and places. And it's fascinating because, another quick trip through New Testament scholarship, for decades, the Gospel of John, maybe centuries, Gospel of John was considered the least historical because it starts off so differently than the others. We've already commented on the difference of the Gospel of John compared to the, the first three, which are commonly referred to, conveniently referred to as the synoptics. John doesn't start with Jesus' ministry. John doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He starts with the pre-incarnate Christ. You think Genesis begins in the beginning. John begins in the beginning, you know? And then John goes on and he's got all these great monologues from Jesus and it feels very spiritual and very devotional and then some people just get hung up on the fact that it feels very different. But then they skip over all these name, you know, place names and things like that. I'm going to introduce us to a fellow who has been popular in New Testament studies for a while now. This book of his, James Charlesworth, Jesus Within Judaism, first came out in 1988. Okay, so some of the stuff has been around a while. James Charlesworth has gone through, went through archaeological excavations of Jerusalem and Judea. And in 1988 came up with a list of seven. So here's another thing that if you want to take a picture of this, I recommend that because it would be hard to write all these things down. Came up with a list of seven things, seven findings, archaeological findings that corroborate the Gospels. We can run through these quickly. Excavations of synagogues in and around Judea. Don't you think it would be kind of strange if the Gospels mentioned synagogues all over the place and archaeologists hadn't found a single synagogue anywhere in Judea and Galilee? It might start to get kind of suspicious, at least with that. Well, there are excavations of synagogues all over the place, okay? Walls and gates during Jesus' time match with the Gospels' depictions and also the mention of Jesus' crucifixion outside of the city. The double and triple gates near a massive stairway leading from the temple stables make Jesus' driving out the animals entirely plausible. Now, it doesn't prove that Jesus did that, but the scene that is portrayed in the Gospels 
seems really like it could happen based on what the archaeological evidence has showed us where the animals would have been kept. Pretty neat. Oh, we could go on down here. The five portico pool. If John is making this stuff up, man, he nailed it. Not only the fact that it had five porches, but it was right outside the sheep gate. We could go on. The, again, this weird mention in John. What, John, the historical gospel, not just the spiritual gospel, the historical gospel. John 19.13. I had to look this verse up because I had just skip over the strange passage about the pavement on the street in John 19.13. But we found, they found stuff that matches this. Again, that doesn't prove, but goodness, we're really starting to shade away from possible for, and even plausible into probable in terms of what a historian can find. You can see the rest of the list here. This one is fascinating. Number six, Dr. Manor, I'm sure, has shown you a picture of this. One of the only physical remains of crucifixion. We have literary descriptions of crucifixion all over the place, but only one of the physical remains of crucifixion that we found is a man's ankle bone that has the nail still driven through it, guys. Yikes which then gave historians and archaeologists a, a, a much more graphic depiction of how crucifixion was actually effective or maybe ineffective at killing you. And that was part of the torture process because it took so long. You had to push up so you wouldn't breathe, and then they would eventually come and do what to your legs so you couldn't push up anymore? They'd break him. But did they break any of Jesus' legs? No, he was already dead. Well, it was common practice for them to need to break people's legs. Because they didn't need to break Jesus' legs, Pilate is surprised. That's historically plausible, that he would be surprised that that would happen because they needed to do this so regularly. Anyway, the third wall around, okay. So, I would mentioned John's use of place names. Here's a German scholar named Karsten Clausen. Clausen. Excuse me. This, the, you love it when the quote and the citation are literally the same length. <laughs> okay. And you know, it's, it's a bear to cite this stuff. But uh, if you're a student and you don't know what Zotero is, get that and live by it. Okay. The fourth evangelist locates the historical Jesus and the people around him at a number of places. These localizations, so what he's saying is these, these place naming features, these localizations may reflect concrete examples of native tradition. Notice at no point here does he say, this proves the miracle of Jesus' healing at such and such a place. Because as a historian, he can't do that. Not, not to this degree. Stories were remembered in connection with certain geographical data. In any case, such geographical details are employed to support the evangelist's credibility. Right, now we just, he just said here, stories were remembered in connection with certain geographical data. Where does the Gospel of John present Jesus' first miracle? Cana of Galilee. Okay. Archaeology of Cana of Galilee reveals, according to uh, this gentleman reveals the presence of religiously observant Jews. How do we know that? Well, get on that here in just a second. There's another quote from Clausen. The presence of these observant Jews 
the presence of somehow observant Jewish inhabitants across a range of status levels in Cana of Galilee concurs with the use of large and expensive stone vessels for ritual purity what housed the water that Jesus turned into wine. This kind of stuff. Stone jars similar to, not precisely, but similar to the kind mentioned in John chapter 2, verse 6. Evidence of stone jars similar to that have been found in Cana of Galilee. Does that, from a historical standpoint, prove? No. But goodness, doesn't John's account really start to move from, oh, I just made it all up, to, wow, this, we're, we're dealing with some strong historical and archaeological probability here. Doesn't prove Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine. As a historian, I don't know that I'm fully equipped to do that with just the tools of history. We'll get to that in a second. But finding stone jars in Cana, similar to those mentioned in John chapter 2, certainly lends historical plausibility, I, would may, I may even say historical probability, to John's account. And we could say similar things about similar test cases in the Gospels. So, some concluding thoughts. A common notion in biblical studies is this. We have an author, and in the areas where we can check them, if they prove to be generally reliable in matters, in big matters and in detail, from a historical standpoint, if they prove to be generally reliable in the areas in which we can check them, we can reasonably infer, not prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, but we can reasonably infer that they are at least comparably generally reliable in the areas where we cannot check them. That's a reasonable inference to draw. Again, the devil's in the details. There may be instances where we, man, we just can't verify. Or the record in the literature is different from the uh, archaeological record. That kind of stuff happens. Especially for archaeology, I'll refer you to the venerable Dale Manor for that. But this is a common notion in biblical studies. And speaking as a historian, as someone who is trained in history, so as someone who has a degree in history, a bachelor's degree that I have a solid B average in. <laughs> Let me be the first to say that this kind of work is beneficial, absolutely. If you'd seen me talking to Scott and Parker and, and Justin up here beforehand, and I was talking about my dissertation and, and, and the test cases that I used to, to compare the way that historians outside of biblical studies operate and to show how what they do is substantially similar to what we in biblical studies do. Man, that's exciting. I love that kind of stuff. And I rarely get opportunities to talk about it as in-depth as I do tonight. That kind of work is beneficial, but alone, right? It's insufficient. Alone, I don't think that can lead you to fidelity, to faithfulness in Jesus, which is precisely what the call of the kingdom is. Lay your burdens down. Pick up your cross. Follow me. A historian can help you bridge the gap to some degree 
and maybe answer some tough questions that you or, or, or friends might have. But never underestimate the power of a life that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit. A historian can't necessarily get you there. That's the end of my formal lecture, but I'm more than happy to take questions. I really appreciate y'all coming tonight. Thank you so much.